Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, why travel restrictions are too little too late, carbon tax semantics, and the film industry can use churches, so why can't churches use them? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. It is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021, the year that never ends, just like the last one, which ended but didn't really feel like it did and has just extended into this one. But regardless, we are here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. A very busy day today. In fact, I'd say it's been a fairly busy week, a lot going on, so we'll try to get through as much of the relevant stuff as we can. I had a couple of emails. <laughs> from uh, people after last show on Tuesday saying that they were a little bit surprised I didn't spend the entire show or most of it talking about the budget, which you may recall was tabled on Monday by the Trudeau government, the first budget of its kind from the government in two years. And I just completely ignored it. I was hoping to today, except I got a bunch of emails. So this is going to be my budget uh, segment. I'm going to do a, a deep dive into all the things that people need to know about the budget. More debt, more deficit, spending a lot of money, most of it's useless, and no one's going to care because it's going to pass. Done. Covered the whole budget in 10 seconds. Now we can move on to interesting and not necessarily as predictable topics because basically there was nothing surprising in it. The one bit of analysis I would say is that when things were good in the Canadian economy, Trudeau said we could spend and we should spend because we can afford it. When things were bad because of the pandemic, the Trudeau government said, well, now we have to spend because things are bad. And as a fiscal conservative, the question I always ask is, well, hang on, when, when do we get to not spend? And the answer is to liberals, there's never a time when spending is not on the menu. And the reason for that is because they are using this pandemic where there are very legitimate expenditures government needs to put out the door as political cover to spend hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And that is going to be the big point. Anyone who criticizes that is going to be characterized as heartless. And this is a very savvy political move by Trudeau because he knows that right now it is a spending culture. Anyone can spend anything. And if you criticize it, you're going to look like the bad guy. So this is the problem that I would say is there for Aaron O'Toole and for, you know, any politician in the coming years. And it does genuinely speaking, hamper any hope of any future government doing anything because they're going to be saddled with all of this debt and these deficits for which there is absolutely no end in sight. Okay, I did about 30 seconds instead of 10 seconds, but I hope you'll uh, forgive me as we move on here. I want to talk about what's shaping up to be the big uh, story of the day in the COVID file, and that is the super duper double teenage mutant mutant double mutant ninja virus version from India, one of the many variants we have because this is now all that all we talk about the so-called variants of concern we've got the uh, Brazil variant we've got the South Africa variant we've got the UK variant we've got the Brazil nut variant we've got the double mutant teenage ninja turtle variant and all of these things and the big hot spot right now from which we are apparently importing the double mutant ninja virus is from India 
Now, the problem with this is that it's become on vogue now to talk about travel restrictions again. Now, I was a big believer earlier on in the pandemic in the need to shut down the border because Canada is not an island, as I've said, when people try to compare Canada to Singapore or Taiwan or even Australia. But at a certain point, the virus was not here. And if you were going to shut down your borders to prevent the importation of the virus, that was going to be when you had to do it. Once it is in, travel restrictions are only theatrical and they only serve to inconvenience at best and at worst compromise the very fundamental freedoms and liberties that are required for citizens of a country. And so the Conservatives this morning, Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservatives, came out and said, it's time to secure our border. This is a clip from his press conference this morning. Throughout April, dozens of COVID-positive flights have been landing in Canada. With them, they've brought the risk of new variants, including the double-mutated variant that is currently overwhelming India's healthcare system. Nearly a third of all international flights landing in Toronto have had COVID on board. It is long past time for Justin Trudeau to take action. The federal government must temporarily suspend flights from hotspot countries immediately. This will buy us time to develop a clear set of parameters for identifying the risks of emerging variants and sharing this information clearly with Canadians. Now, I don't disagree with the sentiment behind it. We know that if the variants are the issue and the variants are the thing that we have to uh, devote our entire public health apparatus to combating, then yes, travel is an important part of that. But the problem is, as he says this, there are, according to public health officials, dozens of cases, not one, not two, dozens of cases of the double teenage mutant ninja virus from India that is now detected in Canada, that are now detected in Canada, specifically in British Columbia. The problem with these variants from a detection perspective is that whatever misgivings people have about PCR tests and whatnot, I'm just going to go along with the government uh, definition of these things now. When the government does these tests and the public health labs do these tests, the variant detection is a different layer. When you run the PCR test to see positive, negative, it's not popping up with positive UK, positive South Africa, positive Brazil. Those tests are run separately. So by the time they start to identify these, they're only getting a smaller subset because these things have already been circulating. They might not necessarily be endem endemic, but they are already in the area in which they're detected if they're finding dozens of these things. So the reason I point that out is we can look at all of the COVID cases that may be coming in on flights from India, and the government actually puts out a tracker where you can go and you can look up domestic, international, train, bus, places where someone has detected a positive a test and see when they are. And if you look at flights from Delhi, there are a lot. And if you look at them, you'll see that it's not just where this flight has a case, this flight has a case. There are often multiple sections identified, multiple sections of the plane identified as having a COVID case. So clearly there is an issue here. And when people are coming in, the supposed what's supposed to happen is they're supposed to go to a hotel quarantine and then they spend the rest of their time in a 14-day quarantine at home. A lot of people, especially in various ethnic communities in Canada, live in multi-generational homes. So the idea of quarantining in a way that segregates yourself from those with whom you live who, if they didn't travel with you it is not an easy thing to do and it's not something that a lot of people want to do 
So the reason I point this out is to say that just like in 2020, by the time people in Canada will get around to doing border and travel restrictions that would matter, it's going to be too late. And that's where a lot of these things happen because the government doesn't want to do the tough calls early on. And just remember, for example, that when we started to detect the UK variant, this was one of the first variants of concern that people uh, were talking about. We did in Canada have flights from the UK shut down for a time. And that did not stop the UK variant from becoming the dominant strain in Ontario very quickly. So either A, the flight restrictions don't work, or B, by the time they get around to them, it's too late to do anything about it. And I feel we're in the same boat with this uh, mutant double teenage Ninja Turtle variant from India. So all of that is to say that when it comes to the tough calls, the government is completely absent. The government is completely absent. They're more interested in doing things that are not targeted at all rather than going after specific areas of concern, where I've always said, and especially with lockdowns, which I know are, are provincial, you can't on one hand say we're going to shut down playgrounds or this story out of Ottawa, where now public health advisors want to shut down all retail so that is non-essential so that even curbside is not allowed. So if you want to buy a cell phone charger curbside from Best Buy, you would not be allowed to do that because they think that we really have to keep people at home. And as Anthony Fury said on this very show on Tuesday, it is not at all about targeting restrictions to where cases are being transmitted. It's about trying to make it so there is nothing that you can do outside of your home. That's even better than a curfew and even better than enforcement is if there's actually nothing for you to do outside your home. Therefore, they hope that people will just stay in their homes. And I hope the province doesn't go this far because this would be, I mean, nothing would surprise me now, but this is the problem is, is that you have all these people that are trying to target things that are not really where the cases are happening, but then you have plane loads of people coming mainly from India right now, planes from India that are showing large numbers of COVID cases and all of these other variants that have somehow got into the country, despite the fact that we're supposed to have an airtight quarantine system. But the government response to all of this is typically to increase restrictions for everyone equally without looking at where the gaps and vulnerabilities were in the first place. Someone who is going back and forth between the United States and Canada for work, who's vaccinated, that does not get them out of quarantine. But these people that are coming in from India, these people that are coming in from areas where the South Africa strain is common or wherever the case may be, they're still supposed to be quarantining, yet somehow that isn't working. And the problem with this is that whenever we see shortcomings in the system, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, I guess it didn't go far enough. And no one actually evaluates why this may be fundamentally flawed in the first place. And this is where we go back to flight restrictions. If blocking flights from the UK didn't stop the UK variant from becoming the dominant strain in Ontario, what was missing? And I'm more and more of the mindset, and I, I know this sounds like a myopic or perhaps defeatist view, but I'm more and more of the mindset that there is no magic remedy that governments keep looking for. The first wave, the second wave, the third wave, the fourth wave, the fifth wave, who, who knows how many waves we're going to get out of this. But the whole point of this is that all of these different measures that people have tried to say are successful really are not. And the countries that have done very well are literal islands 
who have had their borders shut down for over a year now. Places like Taiwan, places like Singapore. And it's one thing to hold those places up as examples and say, you know, yeah, look what they've done. They've only had, I think, like six deaths or two deaths or something like that in some of these parts of the world. But no one in Canada or the United States or the United Kingdom would be prepared to adopt the measures that these places have, which is basically keeping their country completely closed off, which for Canada, good luck with how much we rely on the border with the United States, cross-border trade, shipping, supply chains, and so on and so forth. So this is where we end up in a very tricky situation where everyone wants to talk about travel restrictions when it's too late. We have to accept that we are an open country with a very porous border. And this has been the prevailing issue, I think, that a lot of people in this audience have certainly raised when it comes to illegal immigration for the last several years in Canada, even prior to the COVID-19 crisis. And where are we? We do not have an airtight border around this country, and even if we did, there would be so many exemptions and exceptions to it for essential travel, for supply chains, for manufacturing, for family reunification, that all of these restrictions fail to really do what they are supposed to do. And this is the big problem I have with travel restrictions at this point. I'm not talking about early on. But I'm talking about at this point a year in when the things that we're trying to protect ourselves from are already here and everything we're doing is, you know, a month too late or something like that. The challenge is that the virus does not care whether you are an essential worker with an essential reason for going into Canada. The virus doesn't care if you're a truck driver or if you're a tourist, if you have family in Canada, if you're a citizen, a permanent resident or not. The virus doesn't care. So all of these exemptions and exceptions that I think are required because we do not want to turn ourselves into a country that is uh, treating its citizens like cattle and just saying, well, no, you can't, you're, uh, no, you're infected like mad cow. You got it. We're not letting you into the country. I, I don't want that in this country. So we have to find ways to deal with these things and not focus on the glitzy, glossy, uh, very simplified version that is almost always going to trend towards being theatrical than actually substantive in dealing with this. And the easy way out is not going to get us out of this. We talked about this on the show with Doug Ford's Ontario approach, the one that the Ontario government unveiled on Friday and very quickly backpedaled from that would have given police major sweeping enforcement powers to uh, stop any pedestrian driver, ask them who they are, where they're going, and how dare they be outside of their homes. And I will say, we saw a very swift backlash, and I had called on the government, or called out the government on my previous show for not apologizing, for just saying, as, uh, Toronto, as Toronto area MPP Paul Calandra said, that this was a communications problem. Doug Ford this morning came out and went much beyond that in saying that he was sorry take a look last friday in response to extremely troubling modeling that told us we could see well over fifteen thousand cases a day we move fast to put in measures in place to reduce mobility but we move too fast and i know that some of those measures especially around enforcement they went too far Simply put, we got it wrong. We made a mistake. These decisions, they left a lot of people very concerned. In fact, 
they left a lot of people angry and upset. I know we got it wrong. I know we made a mistake. And for that, I'm sorry, and I sincerely apologize. Because as Premier, as I said right from the beginning, the buck stops with me. Again, I'm sorry, and I apologize to each and every one of you. I will say, from a messaging perspective, that is exactly what Ontarians needed to hear. Ideally, that is what Ontarians would have heard on Saturday. Actually, if we're going with ideal, ideally, this never would have been proposed in the first place. Unfortunately, we didn't get that lucky. Look, I am all for governments that listen to their people, and I'm actually very pleased when governments will in some way admit wrongdoing by reversing something. But again, you want to hear that they understood why it was so wrong. And Doug Ford's justification for that, and by the way, I should say, if you haven't been following, he is in his late mother's, I think, backyard or maybe front yard, I would assume backyard, uh, because he's in self-isolation. A member of his staff contracted COVID, and even though he's been vaccinated and tested negative for whatever reason, the theatrical restrictions say that he has to be in isolation for 14 days. Again, he's had a dose of the vaccine, he's tested negative, but for, I would presume, 14 days, He's now got to be there. So this is not dealing with the issues that we actually have with the pandemic and with community spread. But I digress. The point of this is that he's saying he got it wrong. They tried to move too fast or they tried to move quickly. And as a result, they moved too fast. The issue is not the speed. The issue was doing something without thinking at all about the implications it would have on things other than that one-dimensional look at COVID-0. And Anthony Fury was very eloquent on this subject on Tuesday. He said the problem with COVID-0 is that it eliminates that, that desire to look into the specific areas where government action or any action should be targeted. And instead, it says anything and everything, irrespective of the consequences that will, we think, reduce cases, has to be something we do. So what's happening here is you've got a government that has basically been put on notice. And I, I would say that is the one good thing that comes out of this. I would hope that any measures the Ontario government does in the future are going to be mindful of this dynamic of not turning the province into a police state. Like I said, the apology is appreciated. I don't know if people are accepting the apology necessarily, but I'm glad at least they admit that it was wrong and acknowledge why it was wrong. Because when they just tried to cast this off as a communications problem, no, I played Solicitor General Sylvia Jones' words last show. She was not just making a mistake in how she was wording it. She was selling a policy that was in its very nature a flawed one with an egregious, egregious effect on civil liberties, which governments may not want to acknowledge, but are still very much in existence and are more important in times of crisis than they are in times of peace and happiness when your liberties don't matter because everyone's doing what they want. No, it is in times like this that these freedoms matter the most and governments would do well to acknowledge that. We've got to take a quick break back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
<laughs> I mentioned at the beginning of the show the uh, double. I should get the name right at least once. I, it is the double mutant variant, which originated and was first detected in India. That is the best way of describing it. But again, they're just trying to give all these names to them now that it, you might as well just go with the double Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle variant. Or I think I change it every time I say it, which is part of the fun. I, I will give honorable mention here to Le Journal de Montréal, the newspaper in Montreal that had this on its cover this morning. The Indian variant has arrived and uh, just, uh, I guess, because they had a photo and they wanted to use it, which I am totally for, uh, they go with the uh, one of the like 19 costumes that Trudeau did. Actually, Trudeau, his his wardrobes on that India trip were double mutant in the sense that he, I think he changed them twice a day. So uh, Trudeau's Indian wardrobe is the double mutant Indian variant we've all been warned about right now. But uh, my thanks to uh, Le Journal for giving me a reason to smile in the morning, especially in these times. Aaron O'Toole, as I played that clip earlier, did a press conference this morning, and I put a question to him that I had not heard anyone ask. I've been talking about it. I have asked for an interview with Aaron O'Toole's office, and I've been told, we'll get back to you, we'll get back to you, and after about a week, I, I think it's safe to say I am not going to get an interview at this time. But I wanted to ask about this climate plan of his that we talked about on the show last week. The too-long-didn't-read version of it is that there is going to be a rewards program of sorts where every time you spend a dollar of tax, if you will, on, well, maybe it's not tax. We'll get to that in a moment. But a dollar of a surcharge on a hydrocarbon-based fuel, that money will go to a low-carbon savings account, and that savings account will let you buy green things. So government-approved expenditures like a bike or a transit pass or a Tesla or a retrofit something or other for your home. That's the, the shortened version of the Aaron O'Toole Climate Plan, which has decided to uh, pin itself to the Paris Agreement. So Trudeau's uh, Paris targets, which he's now gone above and beyond, Aaron O'Toole says he's going to meet the Paris targets, and that's the basis of the plan. Now, this comes after Aaron O'Toole signed that carbon tax pledge for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation during his leadership race in which he said unequivocally no to a carbon tax. And you may think it's a semantical discussion. And I will say in constitutional law, it's actually very relevant whether a government-imposed charge is a tax or not. But you may think it's just semantics to question whether it's a carbon tax or just a price on carbon, a regulatory charge, a levy. And the reason I think it's important is because of the integrity factor. When he says no tax and then goes and proposes a plan that will force consumers to pay more for something, that to a consumer is not going to matter. It's a tax. They're paying more for something. It's a tax. And I wanted to ask him along that vein whether he views this as a tax. The background of this being that for the last six years, when the Trudeau government has claimed that its carbon tax is not a tax, the conservatives were calling it a carbon tax. They weren't buying into this whole, oh, no, 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 it's not a price. It's just a price. They're saying, no, it's a carbon tax. So I wanted to ask Aaron about that. Here was our exchange this morning. Since 2015, the Conservatives have called Justin Trudeau's so-called price on carbon a carbon tax. The implication being that if Canadians are forced because of the government to pay more for a product, it's a tax. With regard to your climate change plan, do you concede that you are, in fact, allowing there to be a carbon tax? And if not... How can you not make that with what conservatives have been saying about Trudeau's price on carbon for the last six years? 
I put forward a plan last week that will end Mr. Trudeau's carbon tax and put forward a plan that puts consumers, Canadians, small business owners, farmers in the driver's seat. And the fact that not one penny of the price on carbon goes to Ottawa makes it not a tax. We've had some people say, when you pay a deposit on a bottle and get the deposit back when you recycle the bottle, that environmental levy, that would probably be the closest comparison to this because consumers are not giving an increasing amount of money away, away, away to Ottawa. Mr. Trudeau today is, is likely doubling his, his tax yet again to make uh, new targets he's making up on the fly. So what we've said is Canadians deserve to know what their carbon footprint is, the price on carbon, which is a change, Andrew, yes, but that will be kept with them, and then they will be in the driver's seat uh, with respect to lowering that, uh, that carbon footprint over time. Our plan is modeled to meet our Paris targets, but more excitingly, to have stronger jobs and investment, and that's what we need after the COVID crisis. Listen, I don't like the answer, but I will say he answered it clearly and directly, which I, I very much appreciate. And I know that Justin Trudeau is not interested in doing that. So he answered it clearly. I, I don't buy into his excuse. He said it's like the money you pay for a bottle deposit, which I think is kind of stupid in and of itself. But the difference between that money and the money that you put into your O'Toole Bucks account is that the money you spend for a bottle at the liquor store or I think in Quebec when you just buy like a can of pop or something like that is money that you get back as cash. When you redeem those, you can spend them on whatever you want. With the O'Toole Bucks plan, you can only spend them on government-approved expenditures. So even if that money goes into an account that is yours and has your name on it and doesn't go into general revenue, it's still money that you don't quite control as cash, which is why it's been described more as a rewards program or a points program of sort. And I think that's a bit of an issue here. Now, an interesting point is that Justin Trudeau has moved the goalpost. So Aaron O'Toole has agreed to meet the Paris climate targets. Now, those targets would cut emissions by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. And whether you like or dislike the Paris Climate Accord, I've talked about this extensively. I, I won't go into it too much now. It was the gold standard the gold standard for countries around the world. It's been the gold standard for Canadian climate policy. And it's interesting that now that Aaron O'Toole has said that he's going to meet those targets, Justin Trudeau has gone beyond this to say, oh, now, now Canada's going to go and reduce their emissions by 40 to 45%. Hey, why not go more? Joe Biden's going more uh, today. China's going more. Everyone says they can go more. It's like a, an auction of sorts where everyone just keeps shouting out a number higher than what their colleagues around the world are saying, you don't actually have to do it because the nature of these things is that they're 10, 20, 30 years down the line when your government's not going to be around to be held to account for it. But it is interesting that when Aaron O'Toole does put forward a plan that he says will meet these, all of a sudden the tone shifts. Marika Walsh in the Globe and Mail, who I've always gotten along with, she's a solid reporter, but she says after repeatedly dodging questions on whether the Conservatives will support the new 40 to 45 percent emission reductions target, Aaron O'Toole says his party will meet Canada's previous target to cut emissions by 30 percent. Again, so Trudeau has actually succeeded in changing the narrative just by blurting out a new number, like it's Price is Right, and now all of a sudden the uh, one that the Conservatives had to be uh, 
uh, dragged into doing kicking and screaming is not good enough. And this is exactly the point. This is why I've always said conservatives are not going to win an election on the left's turf. Conservatives are not going to win by trying to compete in areas that the left dominates. Because this is what's happening. Aaron O'Toole has staked huge political capital on this. He has caused a mutiny within his own caucus and from the base of the conservatives because he has gone along with a carbon tax. And what thanks does he get? Less than a week later, it's not enough because now the emissions goalposts have been moved and you have to come up with a plan that is going to go to 40 to 45% emissions instead of 30%. He fell for the liberal trap, hook, line, and sinker. It's done. Now the election is going to be about, oh, why does the conservative plan only want to drop emissions by 30%, even if that was the one that the intellectuals of the world, that the global community agreed on? and that has driven Canadian climate policy for the last six years, now it's not going to be good enough. And I'm amused by this in a way, but also angered that these things, which you can see from a mile away, are not detected by the people that are supposed to know better, the people that are supposed to be smart enough to navigate through the political terrain and come up with good policy that is going to be good for the country and also politically saleable, and they keep tripping over their own feet. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. I want to go back to Ontario restrictions for a couple of moments here, if you don't mind, because this was an interesting one. A colleague of mine snapped a few photos in Flamborough, Ontario, which is just outside of Hamilton, of a film crew setting up outside of a church there. It's the Christ Church Anglican Church in Flamborough, and it's a quite lovely-looking building out in the country. There's lots of space, lots of land off the beaten path, and few industries have been allowed to continue to operate under Ontario's stay-at-home order, the one that we talked about earlier that has uh, very significant enforcement mechanisms attached to it if you violate, but the film and television industry is allowed to open and continue operating. Now, film and television is big business in Ontario. A lot of money, a lot of jobs for every one person you see on camera. There are probably 10 people off camera, which means that there are a lot of people involved in individual shoots, like the one here. Now, I don't know what show is actually being filmed here. I, I know this church has been used in the past for a show called Umbrella Academy. May have been filming that, may not be. Don't know. It doesn't matter particularly. But I made an observation on Twitter that it is illegal right now for more than 10 people to pray at this church, but as a film set, it's allowed to have 50 actors and unlimited crew members, and I joked, because science. And I was getting that information from the Ontario government's website, which talks about restrictions for film and television. It says, no more than 50 performers may be on the film or television set. The film or television set may be located in any business or place, including any business or place that is otherwise required to be closed. So the point of this is that if a church has been ordered to shut down, a church can only have 10 people there to actually use it as a church, they could still film a scene of people going to church with 50 actors. 
five times as many people as would otherwise be allowed, which reinforces the double standards and triple standards that exist throughout a lot of these lockdown restrictions. And I pointed this out not because I think film and television should be shut down. Rather, I think we should be extending the deal that they get to other industries, which is that if you can find safe and adaptive ways to open and go about your business, do it. And I got a fair bit of pushback from people in the film industry who, by the way, I'm very sympathetic to because they deal with very precarious work at the best of times. And now they're finding themselves feeling attacked because it seems like I'm advocating to shut down the industry, but quite the contrary. And I I looked at the regulations because a lot of them were saying, well, you know, we're tested every day and we're in bubbles and this and that and not people necessarily tied to this production. But I looked and and the government has a, a 50 page manual for how to deal with health and safety issues under COVID-19 if you're a film or television set. And I've looked through this extensively. It was last updated in January. And contrary to what people were saying, testing is not required. They have to do like any other workplace or place that's open, a daily screening, which could be as simple as just asking people, do you have any symptoms? Have you been out of the country, etc. They recommend testing using rapid antigen testing to people. They recommend all of these measures, but the actual requirements are not all that strict. Now, as I understand the industry itself, the unions are very powerful, ACTRA and a lot of the unions for crew, they have standards and measures above and beyond this that they've actually injected into their operations because they want to be allowed to keep open. But this proves that it's not about the locations themselves. It is about what you do there. So why on earth does the Ontario government not allow other industries who have a shared commitment to staying open, which means they don't want to be the sources of major outbreaks, why do we not allow other industries to do it? Part of it is the money. Ontario doesn't want to lose its moment. There's this image that Toronto is Hollywood North. Vancouver is sometimes characterized as Hollywood North. It's uh, by virtue of exchange rate, a lot cheaper for American productions to film here. They get access to things they don't have back home as far as just landscapes. And what we, we want to bring all this in because it's glamorous. People like it. So they don't want this to go away because they know that if they say no to a production here, they're just going to find another city somewhere else in the world and this Hollywood North delusion is going to go away. But there are a lot of people in the film industry in Canada. It's not just actors, directors, producers. It's makeup artists, editors, videographers, so many people that rely on this sector to work. And I don't want to put them out of work. I'm talking about all the other people who have been put out of work by government restrictions, who are not being given the same perks and benefits that the film industry has. There are lots of businesses that I know would say, well, hang on, we'll do rapid testing for our employees. We'll do these things. There are churches that would say, we'll adopt these measures to socially distance and do these things that are required of us to open. Why are we not allowed to do it? So yes, just remember this. 10 people is all that could go into this church to pray. But 50 people plus however many crew could go in there to film a scene that might be, for all I know, a scene of people praying. 
Part of me wonders if churches should just convert themselves to film productions. I sent my pastor a text message and said, why don't we just uh, call ourselves a film crew and call everyone in the congregation uh, cast members, and then we can uh, open up. And he laughed. I don't know if he was agreeing or not. So uh, perhaps my church will be converted to a film set by the weekend. I don't know. He's less of a rabble rouser than I am. But I I just want to understand the double standards here. And, you know, someone asked me, well, why is that? I couldn't explain it. Because you can't defend and explain and justify things that are by their nature inexplicable. When they talk about mobility, they're talking about wanting anyone and everyone to just stay in their homes. But if that's the case, why does why does film get a pass? I like movies. I like TV. I mean, there's not as many there are not as many good things to watch lately. But I like these things. But you know what? No one can say it's more essential than an elective surgery than church than some of the things you'd buy in retail. It's no more essential than any of those things as far as its relevance to humans. Yet they've been given a pass and other places haven't. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the program. We'll talk to you next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.